Well, this week we are continuing our series in Mark's Gospel. Jeff is on vacation this week, so sorry you guys are stuck with me for today. Um, But he will be back in the pulpit next week, just continuing in Mark's Gospel where we leave off today. So we're continuing. Uh, Last week, Jeff uh, preached on the passage in Mark, Mark 4, the end of Mark 4. Jesus' calming of the seas and the tumult of the winds and seas. Uh, with his disciples, and today we're just moving on to the next narrative section, which is Mark 5, 1 through 20. I would encourage you as we prepare to read the scripture too, to, to keep out either your bulletin or your eye whatever device or your, uh, your bulletin or your scriptures, your Bible itself, as we continue working through this passage, just as a way of continuously keeping the scriptures in front of us as we work through this passage in the sermon this morning. But before we, we read the passage, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this opportunity of hearing the word, of proclaiming the word. Um, pray, that, uh, pray that the scriptures would go forth and accomplish what you will them to accomplish, Lord. We know that among us, there's a whole host of people, a whole host of needs, those that, are, that need humbled, those that need encouraged. We know the scriptures are able to do all of that. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us all understanding this morning as we hear the word of God read and proclaimed. Would you help me be faithful in my proclamation of the word of God? And um, that we would taste and see this morning through the proclamation of the word that the Lord is good. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Mark 5, 1 through 20, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. They were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. 
Well, whoever said the Bible is boring? This is quite the wild story, isn't it? One that combines several perplexing and interesting elements and components with it. We first of all have this demon-possessed man who's so far gone that the locals apparently can't even take him to the asylum. And as a result, he lives among the tombs. Now that in itself, I think, is a ripe setting for a horror movie. But then we move on. Uh, Then the demoniac runs to Jesus. Commentators note that it's not clear if this man is doing the running to Jesus or if the resonant demons are running to Jesus. But either way, as Calvin tells us, there is something about Jesus's uniqueness, something about his authority, which we'll get into very shortly, that draws this demoniac and this man towards him. And then after a short back and forth with Jesus, the unclean spirit speaks saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now that's pretty creepy too. And then to top off an already strange story, several thousand pigs go careening into the sea. That's the story. Now, when we encounter such a story story such as this, there are inevitably a whole host of questions that we bring with us, aren't there? Who is this man? What's his background? What led to this demon possession in the first place? Who in the world is Legion? And why the pigs? Seems like such a terrible waste of bacon. And we'll touch on some of those points as we continue in the story. But lest we miss the focus of this story, the real focus of this story, this text doesn't primarily call us to focus on the man and his plight, although we'll talk about that, nor does it call us necessarily to feel empathy for pigs everywhere. We won't really consider that. Instead, like every other story in the Gospels, and like the scriptures as a whole, this is a story that draws our attention primarily to Jesus. If you would for a moment, picture with me the setting of this story. Jesus and the disciples, they just survived a night on the sea that featured a near-death experience and a word from Jesus, just one word, that subdued the winds and the sea. His authority over nature was clearly, unquestionably put on display in the previous narrative that Jeff preached on last week. And it's an authority, I think Jeff touched on this too, it's an authority that anybody acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures would clearly have known to be exclusive authority to God himself. So that should tell us something about Jesus right at the outset. And now Jesus and his disciples make their way across the Sea of Galilee, so they've survived the night on the sea, and now they arrive at the territory of the Gerasenes which happens to be Gentile territory. As we've already seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has done some incredible things in Jewish lands. The first four chapters focused on what Jesus was doing in Jewish lands. But would he be able to do the same in Gentile lands? You see, for a culture that was steeped in these notions of local deities, and keep in mind, I don't know if we touched on this at all, Mark's Gospel, scholars maintain, was probably originally written to a Christian community in Rome, so it was written originally to a community that would have been steeped in the notion, at least, of local deities. It would make sense for them that perhaps one of the reasons Mark highlights Jesus' authority in Gentile lands, one among many reasons, is to dispel the notion that Jesus' authority is somehow localized too. I think of the account in 1 Kings 20, when after the Syrians are defeated by Israel, they reflect on their defeat, and they reason, I'm quoting here from the passage in 1 Kings 20, their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. 
You see, this kind of thinking doesn't really phase us, maybe, as 21st century readers of the Gospels, but it probably would have phased a first century hearer. So the question remains, is Jesus Lord only of Jewish lands? Is his authority, like other deities, localized? Well, no. In one sense, we find in this text something we've already seen in Jesus time and time again, and that is Jesus' ubiquitous authority put on display. It's an authority that knows no bounds. But how exactly do we see this authority on display in our text? That's the question before us. And I want to propose we see Jesus' authority in this text in three ways. Predictable, right? Three ways. Here we go. First, we see Jesus' authority as the one who looses. Second, we see Jesus' authority as the one who binds. And third, we see Jesus' authority as the one who sends. So I'll repeat that one more time. Jesus' authority is put on display as the one who looses, as the one who binds, and as the one who sends. We'll talk about that as we go on. But first, we see Jesus' authority as the one who looses. So going back to the text, right after Jesus and his disciples, they arrive at the territory of the Gerasenes. They step off the boat in this strange new land. Mark interjects his characteristic adverb immediately in there. Remember, I think Jeff touched on this multiple times. Throughout Mark's gospel, we have this word, this adverb immediately that pops up time and time again. And it just reinforces sort of the quickness, the quick-paced, action-packed narrative that Mark's gospel is. Well, what happens immediately after they get off the boat. Well, the first thing is they encounter this Gentile man who's living among the tombs. Now, that in itself should tell us something. These disciples, these Jewish disciples, are immediately steeped in an incredibly unclean situation. Not only are they in Gentile territory, but they're now among the tombs. They're in an unclean place, a place full of death, and they're encountering this Gentile man who is absolutely saturated or infused with all of these demons that are among him. This must have been an all-around terrifying sight, a perplexing and terrifying sight for the disciples and maybe for Jesus. They meet this man who is living among, the, among death night and day. And if he wasn't in the tombs, he was on the mountains, going back and forth, presumably, between the tombs and the mountains, picking up stones along the way, cutting himself out of utter desperation. Now, it's not clear why the townspeople sought to bind him in chains, chains and shackles in the first place. Maybe it was for their own peace of mind. Maybe it was for the man's peace of mind. Or maybe it was for a combination of both. But the point is that nothing the townspeople did helped. This man spent his life crying out in desperation and loneliness. It's the kind of desperation, when I was thinking about this text this week, the, the character Edmond Dantes from The Count of Monte Cristo came to my mind, if you're familiar with that. It's a man who was utterly betrayed, thrown in prison in the middle of nowhere, and spent his days crying out to God, asking, why is this happening in utter desperation? That was at least the image that was evoked in my mind this week. It's an image of utter desperation. And yet, what does Jesus do when he meets this man? Does he retreat? Does he shoo away the man when he runs to Jesus from afar? No. He enters into the chaos. You see, the movement of this portion of the narrative also reminds me from, of another scene. It reminds me from a scene uh, from Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Now, um, 
confession time, I'll admit it, I've never read Tolkien, I've never read the book, so I'm going to reference the movie, I know, shame on me, uh, the pastor referencing the Lord of the Rings, and I've never read Tolkien, but I'm going to reference a scene particularly from the movie, and if you've seen the movie, I hope it resonates with you, if you haven't seen the movie, I hope you can visualize, with, visualize it with me anyway, but there's a scene in the movie, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, where the righteous King Theoden of Rohan has been presumably um, under the spell, under a demon, or he's been put under a spell such that King Theoden isn't really King Theoden. It's the product of some other sorcerer who has overtaken King Theoden of Rohan. But in this one scene, Gandalf the wizard, he's cloaked in his appearance and shrewd in his movements. He works his way towards King Theoden, who's sitting on a throne with a guard all around him. Gandalf the wizard slyly works his way towards him, and in this climactic scene, he throws off his robe, and he begins to exercise, exercise this demon that has occupied King Theoden. Ultimately, Gandalf, in this show of force, is able to free this demon after this climactic back and forth with him. The man's color returns after the demon is gone, and he expels the sorcerer from the city. Now, this text that we're reading reminds me of that in some ways, but there's also a significant difference between that scene, if you're familiar with the movie, and the scene we have in front of us in our text this morning, as far as I can tell. And that is that when Gandalf goes to King Theoden and he begins to cast out the demon, it's a pretty intense scene. There's a pretty intense back and forth. King, uh, Gandalf is adjuring this demon, we might say, to come out. And there's quite a fight before this demon is willing to leave. But in our passage, significantly, it's Legion who adjures and who begs Jesus Legion doesn't really seem to put up a fight, unlike King Theoden as a demoniac. Commentators note that in a typical exorcism, it confirms that it, the, what I'm saying, this is confirmed. Because in a typical exorcism, apparently what would happen was it was the exorcist who would have to constantly adjure the demon to leave. And in uh, some fragments that were recently uncovered called the Egyptian Magical Papyri, we learned that in an in a ancient exorcism, whatever you want to make of it, there would be these convoluted formulas, these long convoluted formulas that the exorcist would have to say precisely correct and in a precise order before the demon would leave. But that's not what we find in our text, is it? No. In our text, we find Jesus' unique authority on display in that the demons are compelled to submit simply by his presence and by his word. When Jesus speaks, the tumult of the winds and sea obey him, and when he speaks, the demons are subdued. They have no other option. As one commentator put it, Jesus' word is deed. It has that power to call out of things that are not it call, call into existence things that are not. And friends, the same authority that Jesus demonstrates in dealing with this man's demon-possessed predicament is the same authority he demonstrates in dealing with our predicament. I think this narrative shocks us when we see the utter desperation of this man in the grips of Legion. See, Legion has absolutely dehumanized this man. He's gripped him in such a way that this man is <clears throat> ostracized from his people. He's been ostracized from his community. And he and his community are absolutely helpless to do anything about it. Can you imagine the hopelessness? Perhaps for this man, <clears throat> it would have seemed better to take up the advice that Job's wife gave to Job in the book of Job. Namely, just curse God and die. Because that's all you have right now. And yet, even as we unpack the depths of this man's predicament... The reality 
is that it isn't altogether different than a life gripped by sin and apart from Christ. Just like Legion, sin dehumanizes us. It distorts our humanity. Sin sets us in animosity towards one another, and ultimately it sets us in animosity towards God, and we're helpless to do anything about it. Although demon possession is the issue at stake in this text, I think sin parallels very closely with the predicament we find in this text. And when we see the two as close allies, it only underscores the hopelessness and the desperation of a life gripped in the bonds of sin. But the good news, that but is an important interjection, isn't it? Because it interjects hope. And that hope is that when Jesus enters in, he does something about it. When we're confronted with Jesus in all of his splendor and in his grace, and we heed his effectual call that summons us as his people to himself, everything fundamentally changes. Jesus doesn't merely forgive our sins. He transforms us into new creatures. He restores our dignity. He gives us a foretaste of new creation. And of course, we know that the already and not yet needs to inform our present life in Christ, and it does. But the point is that Jesus is able to take an ugly, hopeless, desperate situation and by his unique and ubiquitous authority call into creation in life that which is not. So that the words of Paul ring true when Paul says, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It has nothing to do with ourselves. It has everything to do with the power and authority of Jesus Christ. The lordship of Jesus Christ changes us and it secures us to himself. Second, Jesus is the one who binds. At the same time, Jesus breaks the bonds that imprisoned this man. He also binds the demonic forces by his decree. The text tells us in verse 10, that if you look at the text with me, that after Jesus' authority leaves Legion no choice, Legion apparently begs Jesus, first of all, don't send me out of the country, and then second of all, send me or us into this herd of pigs that's up on the hillside. Now, the nature of both requests isn't entirely clear, and throughout the years there have been several good suggestions put forward into what exactly is going on here, why exactly do the demons ask not to leave the country, and why do they want to go into the pigs? What's behind that? There's been several good suggestions put forth in the history of interpretation of this passage, but the main point of this passage is quite clear. And that is that Legion submits to Jesus because Jesus has authority over all principalities and powers that stand in opposition to the kingdom of God, specifically all the forces that Satan can muster. And I think what Calvin has to say about this is absolutely correct. Calvin says from this text, hence we infer that the whole of Satan's kingdom is subject to the authority of Christ, not just Legion, but all of the legions that Satan and the demonic realm can put forth are subject to Jesus's authority. So in that vein, look with me again at the request from Legion in verse 10, where Legion asks Jesus not to send them out of the country. Now, well, again, it's not particularly clear why they make such a request. The way this request is worded 
in the parallel account in Luke's gospel is particularly interesting. So keep in mind, this account that we're reading today occurs in all three of what we call the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call those together the synoptic gospels. They give us a lot of the same stories and narrative structure. So in the parallel account in Luke's gospel, there's a particularly interesting way this request is worded that I want to point us to for a second. In Luke's account, Legion begs Jesus, not necessarily don't send me out of the country, but Legion begs Jesus, don't command us to depart into the abyss. Don't command us to depart into the abyss. Keep that in mind. Well, what happens after Legion sends, uh, or after Jesus sends Legion into this herd of pigs and they go careening into the water? What happens to Legion after that? We're not necessarily told. We don't know what happens. Do they leave the water and then occupy another host? Are they subdued in that moment? We don't really know. But we do know that with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we do know what their current fate is and what their ultimate fate is. Significantly, that same phrase, into the abyss, that's used in Luke's gospel, we find later in scripture in Revelation 21 through 3, where Satan himself is cast into the abyss. Same exact wording there. So let me turn for a moment to Revelation 21 through 3. You can either turn with me there or you can just listen to me as I read this passage. It's this cryptic account of the binding of Satan. So Revelation 21 through 3 reads this. Then I saw an angel, so this is John's vision, John speaking. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended after that, he must be released for a little while. Now, I don't think I really need to explain this passage because this passage has never been misunderstood or misinterpreted in the history of the church, and it's entirely clear. You can laugh with me, I'm joking. This is one of the most disputed passages out there. But let me humbly offer to you an interpretation. I'm coming from an all-millennial perspective, if you have any idea what that means. If not, don't worry about it. But what I would humbly advocate that this position, that this passage teaches, is that with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Satan and his demonic forces have been bound from hindering the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean that demonic forces aren't alive and at work against the church today or people in general, but it does mean that with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Satan and his demonic legions are ultimately bound from hindering or stopping the preaching and the reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's important because the gospel is the power of God and the power of God will not and cannot be overcome by any principalities or powers that stand in its way, demonic or otherwise. But there's another piece of background to our text that sheds a little bit more light on this. You see, the word legion, as cryptic as that is, we read legion, I think there's a horror movie out there called Legion, I've never seen it before, but I think when we hear legion, maybe we associate it with something very cryptic or very strange, but for a first century hearer, when they would hear the word legion, they would have thought probably about the Roman military. A legion in the Roman military was a group of between 4,000 and 6,000 soldiers. So when an early reader heard this, they would have thought symbolically of a great militarized multitude but they would have thought particularly of a Roman legion. Well, it just so happens that in Syria, Palestine, around this time in the first century, the particular Roman legion that was based in Syria, Palestine, had as their symbol 
the wild boar, or the pig was their symbol. So if Mark's readers intend for us to see this link, or if Mark intends us to see this link, then not only is he showing us that Jesus' authority expands to the demonic realm, he's also showing us and hinting at the fact that Jesus has authority over the most powerful emperor empire of the day, the Roman Empire itself. In other words, Jesus has authority over every single principality and power, whether heavenly or spiritually or earthly. And practically speaking, I think we see this reality of Jesus' authority over all of life, over all demonic forces and over all earthly powers, we see his authority demonstrated in a very practical way in history. You see, in AD 250, 251, one of the most, one of the most powerful or one of the, most wor- the, one of the worst persecutions to hit the church happened at the hands of uh, the Roman emperor of the time, Roman Emperor Decius. And one of Emperor Decius's goals was apparently to rid the empire of Christianity altogether. He saw Christians as enemies of the empire. And so in 250 AD, about, what, 200 years or more after the account that we're reading right now, he constructed a system whereby every citizen was commanded to offer sacrifices to the Roman gods and declare that Caesar was Lord. And if they did that, they would receive a token, something called a libellius. But if they didn't, they wouldn't receive a libellius. And when people would be walking around town, they would be asked to present their libellius. If they presented it, they were good to go. But if not, they were imprisoned, and very often they were executed right away. Fifty years later, after this event, so Emperor Decius fortunately only lived one year. He died after only one year in power. That should tell us something. But 50 years later, another emperor came to power, Emperor Diocletian, and he instituted another program of persecution. In light of his efforts, some have called Diocletian the most savage of persecutors of the church. And he really did take a toll on Christians. But just after Diocletian steps down from power, one more emperor rises to power, and his name is Emperor Constantine. I think that's a name maybe a lot of us are familiar with. Emperor Constantine gave legal status eventually to the church. I think maybe eventually led to it being the legal or the official religion of the Roman Empire. However, historians note that Constantine didn't make Christianity successful by giving it approval and freedom to operate in the empire. Rather, Constantine gave it approval because it had already become so successful despite the efforts of his predecessors. You see, the remarkable speed in which the church grew and in which the gospel spread despite the horrible scenes of persecution against the church in its infancy illustrates not the church's power, but the power of the gospel. No effort of principalities or powers will hinder the movement and spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think it bears itself out in history showing that too. The same power, friends, that was at work in casting out legion, the same power that was at work in subduing Satan is the same power that's at work in the announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see in our passage the power of Jesus to break down social barriers. That's what the gospel does, specifically the barrier here between Jew and Gentile. We see the power of Jesus and the power of the gospel to repel demonic forces that stand opposed to the kingdom of God. We see foreshadowed in our passage the power of Jesus Christ, the power of God to subdue and bind Satan. And doesn't that give you confidence, friends? knowing the power of the gospel, the same, the same gospel that we proclaim every Sunday, the same gospel 
with which we're called to apply in our lives every week is the same gospel that has the power of God behind it. That should give us confidence. In Jesus, as Mark alludes to in chapter 3, the strong man has indeed been bound, and the strong man will eventually be obliterated. But on a positive note, with the binding of Satan and the binding of his legions, Jesus also binds you and I to himself. This is the reality of union with Christ. In Christ, we've been called, been elected, called, justified, transformed into new creatures, and our spiritual taste buds have been awakened such that, like this man who longs to be with Jesus in verse 18, so too it becomes our longing to be with Jesus, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to partake of his word and take it in each and every day. The desire of all that we are is to commune with our Lord because, friends, our Lord, by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, has bound us to himself. And then third and finally, Jesus is the one who sends. Now, naturally, after Jesus casts out legion and this man is, then the text tells us, clothed and in his right mind, he wants to go with Jesus. It's not too hard to imagine why he wants to go with Jesus. He's been without hope. He's been longing for death more than anything else. But then Jesus enters the equation and everything fundamentally changes. He's now clothed and in his right mind. You can imagine the color being restored to his face. You can imagine the dignity that he would have felt after being restored in such a manner. But when he approaches Jesus, begging that he might join his Lord, he's told no. Rather, Jesus tells him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy upon you. You see, in answering no to this man's request, I think Jesus communicates to us something important about grace as well. Namely, that grace is intended to propel us outward. Rather than leave his countrymen, this man is now called in Christ to be a blessing to his countrymen. To embody, he's an embodiment of grace. God's glory has been shown through him, and now he is called to go to his own kindred. At the same time, this text impresses upon us the mercy of God and the unmerited grace given in Jesus Christ. At the same time, this passage calls us to contemplate on the reality that Jesus Christ has loosened the bonds of sin for his people and has bound the strong man so that the gospel, which is the power of God, can go forth. At the same time, this text challenges us to communicate the mercies of God to the places we've been sent. It also challenges us to reorient our priorities. We're not told who owns these 2,000, sorry, pigs who've gone careening into the sea and drowned, but this is an obvious economic loss to whoever owned them. In fact, some commentators have suggested that these pigs, whoever owned them, probably would have been a food supply to the local Roman legion that was stationed in the area. But regardless, either way, this was, no big, this was no small deal, economically speaking. And it was probably one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, the town was overcome with such fear, which leads them to beg Jesus to leave. Yet what are they missing? What are these townspeople missing in the midst of this? Well, friends, they're missing the joy that should have occupied every fiber of their being because one of their own has been restored and the grace and the glory of God has been demonstrated to them. It's been demonstrated among the Gentiles. That should have led to rejoicing more than anything else. They're missing the joy that should have occupied their every fiber of their being because the kingdom of God was now in their midst. But instead, the way they view it is the status quo has been interrupted. Something strange has happened here 
it's great that this man's restored, perhaps, but this is against what's normal. This shouldn't have happened. Jesus, you're interrupting the status quo. We would need you to just leave. Well, in Acts 16, we have a similar story to the one we have here. In Acts 16, Luke relays to us in this text that Paul and Silas, and presumably Luke himself, they've been traveling around town, and they meet this slave girl who has this, quote, spirit of divination among her. And it's a spirit of divination that apparently brought her owners much gain. One can imagine maybe they go to the local fair and she shows her magic and people provide money because they were wowed and they got to see the spectacle. But as the slave girl follows Paul and Silas along the way, the slave girl begins to cry out who they are. She says, this is, you are servants of the most high God. And I think the text is somewhat humorous in this regard because Paul, it says, Paul was greatly annoyed at this. And so Paul turns around and casts out the demon. Now, I think there's a little bit of humor there. Uh, And as a result, the demon obeys and the demon leaves the slave girl. But in the aftermath, the slave girl's owners are so upset that their hope of financial gain has been extinguished that they capture Paul, throw him in prison, or take him before the officials and throw him in prison. You see, just like our text this morning in Acts 16, for these owners, the grace and the mercy of God is ultimately a hindrance to what they find most dear, namely financial gain. This girl, for the owners, is a, she's not a flesh and blood image bearer to love. She's a financial investment, and that's it. And even more so, the kingdom of God is a threat to their livelihood. So friends, both of these passages, both Acts 16 and Mark 5, call us in that regard to reorient our priorities. What do we long for most of all? Are we more concerned with the status quo of our lives being interrupted by Jesus? Which I hate to tell you, but when we meet Jesus, the status quo of our lives will indeed be interrupted in some significant ways. Or have we been so captivated by the grace and mercy of God that we would give up everything for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the sake of the people of God? When we taste and see that the Lord is good, when we behold the majesty and glory of God, what does that do to you? Does it draw you in? Does it captivate you? Does it grip you in such a way that it propels you outward? That's the challenge this passage lays before us this morning. So in conclusion, Mark, through the Holy Spirit, communicates something about Jesus to us this morning. And let's not lose sight of that. Despite everything before us in this text, despite the very perplexing reality of these pigs going careening into the sea, let's not lose sight of the fact that this text points us primarily to Jesus Christ. Tells us that Jesus Christ is the one who looses the bonds of the principalities and powers that enslave his people. And he binds the same principalities and powers by his word, by his decree. And then he sends us as his church as his instruments, as those who are instruments of, as Matthew says, instruments of binding and loosing on earth. He sends us all by the power of the gospel, by his authority and his grace. And it's a grace and power in whom we have been inseparably bound. Let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are as the God who looses the bonds that have held us in the grip of sin and death. You've done that for your people in Jesus Christ. You've given us the deposit of your word. You've dwelt among us in and through the Holy Spirit. 
You have bound the strong man from hindering the advance of the gospel. And we pray in light of that, in light of the reality that what we, what we have before us is the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that would fundamentally change us as we go about this week, that you would send us into our spheres, wherever they might be, that we would be bold in proclaiming that grace and majesty and power of the gospel to our friends and neighbors and coworkers, and that you would help us as a church and as a community learn what it means to apply the gospel to our lives. For the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, it's the A to Z of the Christian life, and help us to appropriate it as such. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.